All right, everybody, time for another episode of The Big Questions with Big John. And on this episode, someone uh, I've known for a while, he's always been uh, kind to me, and he's always been someone who I could reach out to, and uh, thankfully agreed to do the show. It's Eric Nagel, ladies and gentlemen. Hello, sir. How are you? Um, It's been a long time since I've actually seen you in person and that's not just because of quarantine that's just because of not being in the same building anymore yeah that's true and first of all before we go any further tell me how to address you my urge is always to call you e-rock from back in the day but i don't know is that a name you now eschew is that something you still embrace or is it just eric uh yeah e-rock was before the ona show anyway it was just the, the lesser of the nicknames that was used at the time <laughs> um and then it became the prominent one but right. Yeah, you rock, Eric. Either one's fine. All right, I'll, I'll go with Eric then, just to, to – but you know, it's interesting. So um, just for the folks out there, uh, Eric was at one point – let me get this straight. You were the producer of the ONA show? Is that the right title? Uh, one of a few titles, but yeah, okay. the, uh, producer of that. He was the producer and also on-air talent. Uh, he always showed up on the air. And uh, I have to say one thing, Eric. I always got confused by the nicknames that floated around. So right. as you mentioned, you know, you were called E-Rock. Now, I may be wrong on some of these because I remember I always used to get your interns mixed up. So I would call Blind Stevie Jared. I would call Jared uh, something else, you know, on occasion. Well, that's perfectly fine. You didn't work on our show. Right. So it didn't matter if you knew anybody else's name. <laughs> it really didn't matter. Like I wouldn't have gone to whatever show you were or channel that you were working on and say, Oh, I don't know all these guys' names, because why would I? I don't work there. But I considered myself a super fan, you know? So I was a super fan of ONA and Ron and Fez, and um, it was really it, it was really great working at Sirius if for no other reason than to meet all the voices in person that you would hear on the radio as a fan. And right. um, I remember, uh, like a lot of the guys, especially you were very good to meet Ron Bennington, always a super nice guy, helped me get my show, actually, on Sirius. And also, what channel was your show on? It was the Fantasy Sports Channel. I'm trying to remember. I think it was uh, 202. It's been like 10 years, so I don't remember. Maybe it was 202 and then something else. That was that was one of our old uh, numbers. Maybe that's what I'm remembering, and I'm not sure. We started uh, on the XM side before the merger. We were XM 202. Okay. And then, uh, yeah, we 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 number hopped. Yeah. Right. You no, know, around after that. Because they just couldn't get their uh, their organization yeah, but, together. But what was interesting, I remember that uh, I had the Saturday night show, which at that time, uh, down the hall from my studio, was the studio where Special Delivery was. And uh, That's that's the ONA studio, yeah. yeah. And then also, um, there were a couple of shows going on, but I always thought it was interesting because one of the things I learned very early on <laughs> was you don't live up to your nicknames. So, like, do you know what I mean? Like, you were portrayed as this almost like a lumbering oaf on ONA. Right. And then I met you in person for the first time, and I have to admit, shock, that you were nothing like that. Like, you're not obese, you're not, like, you're not, like, clumsy, you're not bumbling around. Did it ever bother you that you had a certain character portrayal, and then maybe when people meet you, and I'm not talking about the inside people at Sirius, you know, your colleagues. I'm talking about people on the street or people who may walk up to you in a bar or something saying, oh, you're that fat fuck from ONA or whatever, and you're really not, and you're not that bumbling right. idiot. Did that ever get to you as a character blending into your personality? Um, here A little bit here and there, depend on what degree that it was you know, coming at me with, but for the most part... 
we had a big staff. We had a really big staff, but a lot of them didn't want to do anything on the air. Mm-hmm. They wanted to contribute. They wanted to do the uh, point and ha-ha, you're like, you know, the pylon thing. The majority of them didn't want to do anything on air. Sam did stuff on air. I did st- stuff on air. Uh, Steve C. reluctantly did stuff on air, but everybody else was just not uh, either wanting to be in the forefront or thought that they were above that. Oh. And the ones that were above that were the ones that also didn't last long on the show. They, you know, wound up leaving for whatever reason. But, um, I, I, I yeah, it kind of sucked. But and then you had to learn to fight. But once I realized, here was a big thing. In the early years, I didn't know my level of where I could fight back to. Right. You know, because if you listen to Howard show, you can't mouth off to Howard at all. If you listen to some other shows, um, like Ron and Fez. Well, one, you, sh- you wouldn't want to mouth off to Ron Bennington. But if, if for some reason, if you did, there's a level of here's my job, here's his job, or th- or the host's job. I'll say it's not gonna, I'll right. just won't pinpoint Ron. But like, uh, here's my job as a producer and sort of on air, and then here's the main host. You can't go head to head unless it really warrants it, and you can't go above them because you just don't. It's not right. how it works. So. It took me a while to realize that I could move for everyone else was either jumping across the line when it was warranted or not warranted. And I just would get up to the line, but never cross it. And then sometimes I went, you know, why am I the one holding back when nobody else is? So then I I started to learn based on uh, the feel of the room, the flow of the conversation, the cues from Norton and Anthony and or Opie for depending whatever the situation is. If I'm seeing something like you can go further and then I would. You know, you take it to 11. Um, but once I figured that out, then I, I really didn't care about how much of that nonsense was coming at me because I was getting the airtime. I was getting the attention. And if you look back, if it's not the comedians, if it's not uh, individual stories from the time Jimmy did this or the time Anthony did that, it's Opie. I'm sorry. Do you have Opie and Anthony? It's Steve C., myself, or Sam. And it's those are the three that anybody remembers anything. Maybe the others had little offshoot uh, bits here and there, but it was always just the people who were willing to put themselves in front of everything. And yeah, you, so, you wind up filling in a role right. to play, but then you start doing your own thing. And so like, all right, I do that, but that allows me to do all these other things uh, behind the scenes or over there away from the show because I did that thing. Right. And that's what opened up a lot more stuff, uh, you know, to move into running to the uh, running the channel, overseeing the other shows that were on the channel, doing my own thing. Like there was a whole bunch of stuff that opened up once you realized where the line was. Some people didn't realize where the line was and, you know, caused problems. Yeah. You know, I found that fascinating when I would watch you on the weekends um, for special delivery. For example, real quick, here's something that they they would joke about on the air that isn't uh, uh, what it seems. A rather large beverage container, because <laughs> who doesn't enjoy a good treat, right? Right. Oh, luscious mm. treats, and uh, it's it's black tea with lemon. It's nothing special. Any mayonnaise in there? No. <laughs> nope. No mayo. No mayo. Um, I was going to say one of the things that actually fascinated me was when I would when Sam and Dave would do special delivery. Right. You were there. You were there. Just at at first to start them off. Right. Um, it was supposed to be. Chris Stanley, 
Pepper from yeah. uh, uh, Pepper from. Does he still go by Pepper? I haven't listened. To I, it in I a don't while. know. To be honest with you, uh, but, but yeah. For the current audience, the Bennington Show, Ron and Fez, Chris right. Stanley. Uh, it was supposed to be him, and then there were times if he couldn't do it, I would come in, and you know, that was early at the launch of their show, and then I was doing the channel stuff. I was doing the you know the ONA show and I just I didn't have the time to give up a Saturday night right, right. to do that as well so I did it for a little bit and then I just I can't do this but anymore. But what was interesting to me was that you were actually there overseeing the show or, or uh, Chris was there overseeing their show. Here I am a guy who never was on national radio literally right. went from podcasting to a national radio show in a month and there was nobody there. Braggart. No, no well you know I, the only reason <laughs> I say that and listen yeah all thanks to Ron Bennington. He's the one who went to Steve Cohen for me and said, "This guy's great on my show. When he calls in, you should give him a right. you should give him a demo." And th you know, I, I I didn't know that's how you started. Yeah. I, I was not I because to be honest, when I first started running into you, yeah, I thought you just worked in a different area of, of the company that I because there was like a whole second sure. floor and a third floor that I right. didn't go to all the time, and then people coming up from. Uh, from DC or we still had the XM facility over right. in Lincoln Center. Like there were still places that shows were being done. Right. And I thought you were just one of those guys coming in. I'm like, oh, he must belong to some other department. I'm just now starting to see this guy. I didn't realize that you were a uh, a Ron and Fez caller. Yeah. That wound up getting in the door. Yeah, and I got my Good for you. That's an even better story then. Oh <laughs> thank you. Um but I was shocked that they would put me on the air and I mean, I had the guy in the booth who would like run the commercials or whatever, but there was nobody there giving me hints or anything. And, you know, whereas I remember you were there or, or Chris was there with uh, Sam and Dave. And I mean, uh, for, for, the, for anybody that might remember that there, there was a, quote, radio war going on between special delivery and sports grumblings at the time. Dave would always bust into my studio and try to take over and everything. Yeah. You guys had that. Who's that tall wrestler? You, uh, the ECW zombie, I think, came in one time. That was yeah, all that <laughs> stuff. I only did a handful of shows with special delivery. I was not there for the majority of their of that run. You were there for that one because you came to me afterwards, which I thought was professional of you, but unnecessary. And you said, now, you're not going to stooge us out to anybody, right? Because, you know, you guys literally jumped into the show and took over my show. You guys thought we were in commercial, but we were still actually live on the air. And see, one of the, I don't even remember yeah, that. Yeah, see, and one of the funniest things was watching you and Sam trying to play it down while Dave was running around. But my point is that I was shocked that we had no guidance at all. And maybe that's why we only lasted a year. We had no guidance, you know. Um but I still enjoyed it, and I, I, one of my greatest pleasures there was meeting you guys. So I got to meet Jimmy Norton. I got to meet Ron Bennington, Fez, you. Uh, for whatever reason, Anthony I met, but I never got to meet Opie. It was one of those weird situations. And actually, one time I was actually face-to-face -face with him, but he had some hoodie on, and I couldn't tell it was him. So I ended yeah. up walking away from him. So He was hiding from the public that, that constantly <laughs> stalks him. You know, that's what Sam used to say, but... Uh, Whatever. I have no opinion on that, but uh, it was great meeting you back then. But let me, you know, and there's always going to be questions about ONA. I'll get those elephants uh, out of the room right now. Uh, Eastside Dave. Okay. Is he always on 24-7 in your opinion? Uh, or is he ever off? He's not, he's not, I don't think he's ever off, but he's not always on. Okay. Like, because I, I work with him uh, at Compound Media. He does a show yes. on our network there, and I oversee his show. And uh, like, as far as you know, the the technical end of it, right. he he and Roy do their own show. They write their own stuff, and and uh, pretty much just have, 
I don't I don't even know how to describe that show. Like it reminds <laughs> me of the of the old days in uh, the 90s when you if you were in New York or LA any kind of major city right. that had public access yes. and you would just find these weird bizarre programs on super late at night or over the weekend. That's what Dave's show is, but uh yeah like I still see him, I still you know work with right. him to some extent and Dave is just Dave is Dave it just depends on what degree Dave is at. Right. Okay. When he's not on the air, I mean on the air it's all the way, you know, he maxes out, but when he comes in, you can still say like all right, that's Dave. He's not really putting this on. You know, he amplifies okay. it, but Dave is uh not always what you see. Sometimes it's just a muted version okay. of uh what you've seen on TV or what you've seen on the radio. But uh, Dave's pretty authentic at what he is. Yeah, I got the. F I I didn't doubt his authenticity. It was more just to me like, does he ever calm down? Because actually, the whole Big John thing came from Dave. Like he would invite me into special delivery and he'd say, "Okay, the ground is shaking, so Big Fat John is coming." And then all of a sudden, I'd be in a bar at like Forty Seventh Street or something, and somebody woke up to me and say, "Like, aren't you that fat fuck on special delivery?" That's why I asked you that question initially. Not it never. Right. I, it never bothered me to be honest. Some, but with you. the thing is, D Dave takes Dave learned from the uh, from the Church of Bennington, okay. if you will, yes. right? Um, whether he ex executes it as well uh, <laughs> is up to debate. But um, a lot of his mindset and a lot of way he he crafts his on air persona and what he does um, does fall from you know a lot of Ron and Fezisms. You know, right. the way they would do things, the bait and switch, or sometimes blurring the line when you can't really tell. Right. Um, I will say this, you know, people get, if they don't know Dave and they watch his stuff and for the first time they get kind of freaked out, like, what the hell's wrong with this guy? Like he's yelling and screaming right. and then all of a sudden they're singing, doing a sing along <laughs> and then he's got a, uh, you know, a, a robot that's, you know, speaking profanity and, and technical gibberish and then Bobo shows up for no reason, you know, like all this weird stuff's going on and you're, some people would get shocked. I get more shocked when there's low sedated Dave when he comes in. Mm. Hi, Art. How are you? Well, like that. That creeps me out a little bit. Yeah. And that's not a bad thing. If Dave's seen this, it's not a not nothing. No offense to that. It's just I've known Dave for so many years that I know Dave as everybody else knows Dave. But I also know Dave behind the scenes when he he's been um, he's changed a lot in the last few years. Okay. For the better. And uh, so sometimes he's a bit more subdued. But when he gets when he comes in as normal Dave, you're like, that's I think that's more terrifying than the on air version of him screaming and shoving a blow pop up his ass, you know? <laughs> yeah. I, uh, well, wasn't that a game for a while? What shoved up Dave's ass for a while? Yeah, what's up inside <laughs> Dave's ass? Yeah. Now that wasn't a work, right? That was in the theater of the mind. Were there objects yeah, there, really going up there or not? No, there was because there was no management. We were at the last years of XM. All the management had either been bought off or left. So we were left alone in New York until the merger was done. So that's when all, all like the real debaucherous <laughs> stuff was happening because who was going to who was there to tell us no? Right, right. I, so yeah, he, he had like a Hot Wheel car one time, <laughs> low pop. I think a I think a thing of lipstick. I don't know what he had. Well, the one with the hot sauce freaked me out. Like who would pour hot sauce up their ass? But I, I, like, uh, did he end up going to the hospital for that one? I think. Um. I honestly don't know. You'd have to ask him. Okay. But that that's a devotion to craft right there. I have to tell yeah, you. Yeah, but also the thing was it was Dave's reaction, his scream. Because Dave, 
when he was doing, I remember, I'm remembering that, but now it sounds like when a tea kettle is about to go off, yes, yes. starts whistling and then gets <laughs> really hot. Yeah. So that's Dave. Or the other times when he was screaming in pain, he sounded like when they revealed the judge at the end of Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Yes. As it's melting, the Christopher Ma- uh, Lloyd Christopher mask is gone. And he's like the high pitched voice and he's screaming and yelling as he's melting into the thing. That's pretty much, you know, <laughs> uh, that would be the impression of Dave. Cool, cool. And I always liked Dave. He always, for some reason, thought we should be adversarial, but I don't know why. I was just the guy down the hall. Because uh, Dave needs somebody to play off of. Yeah, I got it. But like I said, when we were off the air, like hanging out in the back offices, he was still like that. Like he would come in and challenge me to a wrestling match because someone told him I used to wrestle in high school or something like that. I was like, man, I'm trying to get ready for my show. Leave me alone for five minutes, you know, but he was right. always on. Um let me ask you this, the perception of Sam. Now, if you talk to typical ONA fans or uh, Jimmy and Sam fans, they'll kind of tell you, it's like, is this guy an opportunist? Is he a little bit of a weasel kind of running around, getting involved in everything? Um, what's Sam really like off, off air? Is he is he like a good Sam, work, working guy? Sam works hard. He uh, He's good at what he does. That's about it. Like okay. I don't, I haven't talked to him in, in many years. Okay. He's, uh, I don't think he's the same person as he was. But uh, yeah, Sam worked hard. Yeah. Sam was uh, determined. I'll say that. And um, yeah, that's about it. Wow, is that uh, one of those? Don't say anything if you can't say something nice. Or are you just being very? Uh, I haven't very talked. To, no, it's, it was. I just haven't talked to him in, in years. I have no issue with him. Okay, cool, cool. He just he went one way. I went another way. Fantastic. Um. Now, uh, Anthony, I've met him a couple of times, especially when he started in Manhattan with his studio. Uh, just by dumb luck, I had my office across the street from his uh, studio. Mm-hmm. So when he opened it up initially for audience, I was there like every day. And um, I know how what I've seen when he's not on the air, but how would you describe Anthony? Is he the character that you hear on the radio? Is it more of like a wrestling persona where it's kind of him but turned up to 11? How would you – for people who have this opinion of Anthony as – and I understand you work there uh, for his company right now. Um, for people who have this thing that he's this racist asshole who got fired for these racist tweets, it's like how would you how would you respond to people who like kind of brand him like that? Uh, that, that, that whole thing's ridiculous. Uh, I mean that's six years ago now. But it's still Since be, that it's, happened. But it's still being brought up, right? I mean, I see a lot of these people who will well, say... The, the only people who bring it up are just these bitter people that were fans of us or, or Anthony at one time and uh, just, you know, got mad because mommy and daddy got a divorce. Gotcha. And the show that they loved, they took it as a personal resentment and then just went the other way because if they couldn't have the thing that they loved, that they were going to destroy the thing that they that they loved. And that's what they do. So the ones that do still bring it up are those people because nobody else – we everyone else has moved on from it. None of the companies ever acknowledge it or deal with it anymore. And so it's just like what, what good does it do to keep bringing that up? It's just people who want to keep shit stirring for no reason and that's what they'll they'll do. Like they do it to Ope. They do it to Jim. They do it to Anthony. Right, right. And it's just a handful of people who just happen to be very vocal about it. It doesn't really mean anything, you know. It's right. not going to affect him from uh, from working ever again. It's not affecting him from from doing what he does now. So right, and by all accounts that I can tell, he's quite successful. Not just doing his show, but in actually right. building a network. 
Um, he looks like, you know, he did it the right way. He built it properly, and he's bringing in great talent, you know, like yourself and Eastside Dave and uh, uh, Dave Landau and everybody that's on com- at Compound Media right now. So, right. I mean, he really came out of it, uh, out of that controversy, I think, very well on his, uh, landed on his own two feet. And from my perspective, always been a super nice guy to me. He doesn't remember my name, which is hilarious. He'll always just look at me and say, hey, I remember you, and he'll wave, and I smile or whatever. Everyone, I, look, if, if you were doing this for so long, it's really hard to remember oh, sure. every single yeah. person. You remember faces right. or something seems familiar, but... Uh, I wouldn't take it personally. Oh, I never do. I never do. Yeah. I, I'm horrible. I, I'm horrible with names. I'm the same way. I'm a face recognition guy, and I can't remember anybody's name for the most part. But let's talk about this. Like, obviously, another big elephant in the room is the relationship, perceived, I should say, relationship between Anthony, Jimmy, and Opie at this point. And then all the satellite characters like you and, and Sam and... Um, uh, who else? I, I can't, or if I'm drawing a blank on anybody else around there. But it seems like there's always these back and forth. Now, you know, there's obviously relationships that cultivate over 20 years. But how are those guys really? Like, is it the type of thing where they're cordial, but they just don't deal with each other? Particularly Opie with Jimmy and Anthony, considering the breakups. Um, or is it is it, again, played up for the radio that there's more acrimony there you think or is it just hey we're done we're each going our separate ways you'll see the occasional twitter flame right right um no it's they don't talk anymore they don't uh and that's by ope's choice ope doesn't talk to anybody anybody it's just him and then he um complains that everybody else has abandoned him or turned on him or backstabbed him or whatever and and that's just something, you know, he has to deal with uh, on his own. Whether he wants to come to that recognition or not, that's up to him. Right. But uh, that's choices that he made and actions that he did. And uh, look, nobody's in this whole thing is completely innocent. We all have, you know, our parts and whatever uh, was going on. But uh, at this point, you know, Anthony and Jimmy have been pretty vocal about their feelings on a lot of this stuff. And right. I think at some points Opie has posted or said something um, that he has as well. And if that's how he honestly feels, then I don't know. I haven't talked to him in years either. But Now, was it Opie that brought you on to the ONA show, or was that an assignment mm-hmm. from XM? Or how did, how did you actually no, start no, that was, that was that was that was uh, that was Opie. Opie uh, did that. And uh, I've always been very appreciative of that. And, and uh, you know, worked really hard and I think more than paid off my uh, figuratively uh, figurative debt right. that I would owe right. to him. Um, I never felt like I owed him anything. I, I always felt honored and uh, lucky to have that opportunity that he opened a door for me. Uh, but I think I've long, you know, repaid that. Yeah, and I didn't mean to imply that you did owe him anything. I was just curious as to how the relationship started with the show. Like, did you, um, for, uh, let's even back up a little more. Did you start out wanting to be an on-air guy on radio? Did you go to school for radio? Did you, were you more interested mm-hmm. in behind the scenes and you kind of like got dragged into the on-air side of it? How, how did that evolve? I, I wanted to be both. I, as a little kid, I used to just call, ra- I lived uh, right in the, the backyard of New York City growing up. So I, you had all the major shows sure. and, and talent out of New York City that I used to listen to. And I used to call radio shows all the time as I think like as early as 
five years old. Wow, that young. Uh, yeah, I would just pick up the phone because they would say the phone number on the air while it was on. I would just pick up the phone and start calling the phone number. Sure. And uh, I used to call this uh, this uh, radio uh, personality, Scott Shannon. I remember Scott Shannon. All the time as a little kid. And as I got older, I was trying to figure out how they did radio because I was obsessed with it. So I was learning how to record the the radio the rate shows off the stereo how to save them from other cassettes to little bits on this cassette you know transferring sure. things and figuring all that out on my own until i could uh lie to get into an internship told them <laughs> i was in college but i was really i think 16 or something and they never tracked think about 16 well this was in the mid 90s you oh, know they wow. didn't they didn't have the full computer right. um layout as they do now you know, so everything was still paperwork. I would fill out paperwork and then not hand it in. Mm. And because they were internships, so they just needed people to set up tents and hand out stickers and koozies and stuff while one of the jocks was at a car dealership for two hours. And, uh, yeah, so I started uh, lying to the, some of these radio stations on Long Island just to get in for internships until I got to um, WPLJ with Scott and Todd hmm. and uh, interned there for almost two years with uh, between the, their show, another afternoon show called uh, Rocky Allen right? and Blaine Ensley did a show called the Rocky Allen Showgram in the afternoon, worked in the morning show, went to their show, did stuff for the station, was, uh, doing school, went to college, was learning broadcast and media in there, which by the way is a big fucking waste. Anybody <laughs> going for television or radio production just do YouTube tutorials and buy the software and learn it yourself because nothing in school is going to teach you Where'd you go to school? anything. I don't even want to mention it Fair because enough. <laughs> I Fair tried enough. doing stuff for them. Um, I got stuff from like the department heads and, and alumni stuff sent to me right. where they were asking for money and all this stuff. And I reached out because I worked at my college radio station for almost four years. And I said, hey, I'm doing all this now. I was with Opie and Anthony at the time said, hey, I'd love to offer, you know, help or if anybody wants an internship or any of that stuff. Never heard back from them. Oh. So I kind of was getting, yeah, I kind of got shunned by the whole thing. And I don't know it's be, if it was because of the show that I worked on or, or whatever the reason was. Nothing. But they are still, they were all over me to try to get money from me for the alumni stuff. This is a story I, don't, I think I've told on my show once. But I remember one Saturday morning I got a phone call. And I guess he's a coach of something at the school. And he said he was going off through the whole rambling alumni thing right. where they try to solicit money. And I said, I, I appreciate the call. I'm not interested. And he's like, you're not interested? And he's like, but didn't you go to uh, – you went to school here and you, you know, like, didn't you get something out of it? Didn't you go – I said, hey, I got some stuff out of it. Well, you don't think it's you know it's time to pass that along and, and give back to all that stuff? And I said, no, <laughs> because every time I've tried to help the school out, they've given a big middle finger to my face or they don't call me. So I said, screw them. I don't want to – I don't need it. I got my jobs without all their promises and their connections. I got them myself. Right. So I didn't need it, and uh, I just thought it was a way. My senior year, I just I was I would have just walked out if my if my parents would have let me, because yeah. I realized I was like I'm working, this school is doing nothing for me, and here's what the guy said. He goes, "Don't you want to support your you?" What? And I oh your you yeah. you the letter you. And okay. I paused for a second, and I could just I was like biting my teeth. Oh my god! And I go, "There's only one you, and it's the you of Miami." 
No one else calls their school the U. I said, I don't give a shit about the U. Right. I'm not doing this. Don't call me again. And I hung up. I just received mailers from them. Yeah. But uh, in fact, I hear they may be actually having to close because of the quarantine and everything. Yeah. So I couldn't have been happier when I heard that. <laughs> you so. mean close permanently? Uh, well, it let's see. It started off as a long before I got there. It was its own college. Okay. Then it became a university. And then it got absorbed into a state school system. Okay. So it, it like it went high profile while I was there. And now they're uh, they're suffering pretty good. And uh, screw them. I'm a big proponent of not going to college. I've been very <laughs> vocal about this. That's wasting unless you're a doctor or a lawyer, something specific right. that requires all of that. If you're going for any kind of vocational not, type of not thing, just the, yeah, but not even that because that makes it sound like TV and radios is like apex tech you know you finish the training and they give you a, a box of software that you get to keep at the end and get your certificate right, right. Uh, no but it's like most of it's like because they're they're raping you financially right for you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars when you don't need to take all these dumb electives when you're paying to go to that school it's not like high school anymore right. so don't if you're going especially if you're going for mass communications or or broadcast like every school calls it something different but if you're going for broadcasting of any kind, um, just w w watch videos online, get software, and then you start making the connections. Try to intern somewhere. Right. Get your foot in the door. That's the only way you're going to succeed in any of this business, uh, TV, radio, even streaming now, broadcast right. media, digitally, all that stuff. Get your foot in the door. Work for free or work as a part-time paid intern, whatever you can do, and just don't dick around, but see, annoy everybody in the right way. Just say, can I just sit and watch how you do this? Or can you show me what you do? Right. Annoy them because that's the only way you're going to learn how to do this stuff. And then advance. like even now, I can't imagine trying to intern now hmm. when there's all of, uh, well, not with the quarantine stuff, but even just before that, when, when there was all the, uh, you know, the increased paperwork and security and all this stuff, when like the me too stuff was going down or, uh, or uh, when the uh, a lot of companies were getting sued by interns because they felt that they were being used as free labor right. and they were demanding to be paid. And then companies started cutting their internship programs and said, right. screw it. We're not going to do it then. You're losing all these opportunities. And I, I can't imagine if I had to try to do that now, how would uh, you just have to be like everybody else? You got to figure out how to stream, how to edit, how to do all this stuff. And then you come off like some kind of podcaster. The whole time instead of actually getting experience to do this stuff. everyone can do it now doesn't mean everyone can do it right there's a right. way of doing things that make it stand out all the, the people that have that aren't influencers that have actual programs that are getting you know millions of subscriptions and millions of views it's because they figured out a way to translate their stuff and they're doing it in the right way it's not some kind of piece of you know shit program that they're putting out there that that's doing well they're they're actually they figured it out and they didn't go to school they didn't do any of that stuff i you know i, I felt i see i agree with you oh, that was a long rant by the okay, way sorry man, that's okay um i agree with you 100 percent because like I, I went to school i had no interest in being a broadcaster or an artist or anything like that man i was a scientist my degrees are in science um and even then i don't give a shit about my university my alma mater because right. I felt they hindered me along the way. You know, I was a double major. They made me, they wouldn't give me my diploma, even though I finished everything on time, you know. So they were yeah. like, well, hold on to it until next year. Why? I earned it. Give it to me. Yeah, I, I had something similar to that, too, because yeah. I had a job opportunity, and I wasn't going to, 
Like I was trying to get out of my last semester. And and because I know people would do that semester abroad stuff or they would do that working semester where you're working in the field that you would work that semester and then you would qualify for graduation. And I tried to do that. And I didn't even uh, care if I was at graduation or not. And they wouldn't let me like they were fighting me on it. Yeah. And then I said, well, then you can't go to graduation. I said, then just mail me the diploma. I don't give a shit. Right. I don't need to go there to walk this through. And they pull that angle. It's like, well, you're, you know, this is more, you know, if it's not for you. Think of your parents and think of all right. that stuff. I go, my parents want me out of the house and <laughs> with a job. Right. And I am already doing that now before I even finished this. So yeah. just send the piece of paper. And that, and that's what it was. I never even bothered with the, the you know the majority of the of the of my senior year with yeah. that point and they just had to suck it up and deal with it um there, oh, there was something else i was trying to get to about that damn it i just spaced out that's okay i mean personally while you think I, i'll tell you this i'll send money to my oh, to my high school i remember Go ahead. Yeah, sorry yeah. i remember the other thing was that my school had a planetarium hmm. and i loved astronomy and i was like Oh my God, there's a planetarium. So for my general electives, I kept taking every science course that I could in astronomy. And then they wouldn't let me finish up my GE block with it because then they would have to charge me for a minor oh. because of that. I go, I'm like one, I forgot how many credits it was, but I'm one class away, whether right. I think it's like three or five or something to finish that block. They wouldn't let me do it because I stayed in the same science. That I would have to get them, it would, they'd have to charge me for a major, uh, sorry, for a minor. Right. And my dad was yelling, he's like, I'm not paying all this extra money for an astronomy minor that you're never going to do anything right. with. I agree. Didn't even argue with him. I was right. like, no, you're 100% right. They made me take another uh, 101 science class. And I was already at the four level right. for astronomy. So I had to take the only class they could put me in was geology <sighs> at seven in the morning. And one, you're a college kid. Seven in the morning is not doable. But two, I would do my classes in midday, and then I would work radio, not just the college station, but I, I worked at other smaller stations right. in the region at night. So I would bounce between two or three stations and then come home at night, late at night, do whatever work I did, sleep, and then go to my first class at 10 in the morning. 7 a.m. is ruining everything. I can't work late and then go and get up to go to class at 7 a.m. So I just stopped going. Yeah. I showed up at uh, somebody told me about the test. I showed up for the test. I barely passed the first test on it. And then I went to, uh, damn, it's not the guidance counselor. What is the office? I'm forgetting the name of the office there. But it's like yeah. what guidance counselors right. would be in elementary right. school. And I said, this is not going to work. You're, this is interfering with my other classes and my work and all this. I'm like, I can't take this to pass that and have it be detrimental to everything else. And they're like, well, there's nowhere else you can put it. And then I'm just not going to go. So you might as well just drop it. And they wound up dropping the class because you can't force me to do that. This isn't a job. I'm not paying to work at a job. I'm doing school and I'm working jobs. I just I hated college so much. And it wasn't the reasons that everybody else hated college (laughs) or loved college. I just hated because they kept fucking with my schedule of everything I was trying to do. And then I realized I was like, I don't need them. I can just do this on my own. And to be honest with you, I have a. It's very similar because um, I was taking the two majors, biology and computer science, that were the most credit heavy. Right. So the way I got around it was I cut deals with the various um, deans of each department. 
Right. Like, for example, for my language credit, I said, find me the hardest course you have in ancient Greek. Like the last one you would give anybody. And if I don't get an, I didn't even say if I pass it or not. I said, if I don't get an A in it, I'll go back and take the lower classes. But if I get an A in it, will you let me skip the four nonsense classes I have to take to lead up to that class? Right. And they said, sure. So I did four years of that to cut corners on stupid requirements. And when it came time to graduate, they didn't give me my diploma until I retook those lower level classes. A lot like what you're saying. So they said yes, and then at the end, they're like, nope, you still have to do they it. fucked me over. So literally, yeah. did not go to my graduation, got my diploma mailed to me, much like yourself. And I have to tell you something. I'm older than you, so people might find this goofy, but I think if YouTube were around when I was in college, right. I never would have finished college. Because right now, like, I didn't learn about quantum physics from college. I learned it watching on YouTube and going down these rabbit holes of these professors and scientists and physicists right. explaining it. And the same thing with broadcasting, um, just listening to the radio. Then when YouTube came around, oh, how do you use uh, Audacity? How do you use uh, Adobe Premiere? You know, and things like that. And, and I'm self-taught and I've always been curious about stuff. So um, do you view your life as a series of challenges at this stage even? Like, um, hey, man, I want to accomplish this, so I'm going to go do it. Or... Have you reached a level now where you're like, hey, I kind of enjoy where my life is at. So I think I'm going to try to keep it status quo because I, I, I'm kind of where I want to be right now. No, you can't ever be where you want to be because if you're at – it sounds like a dumb motivational thing. But if you're at, if you're at the level that you want to be, then you're content and you're, <laughs> you always need to be – not. It's a weird balance because I hate that kind of motivational talk. Right. But then I always hate the motivational talk of – you can't stop. You got to keep moving forward. Everything that it's like, no, it's not as 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 simple as that, and it's not as hectic as that either. Look, yeah, move forward, have new goals, have new challenges set up, so that you can keep doing things. You learn, you grow. I get all that. Right. Makes sense. But you can be content with some things too. You just can't rest on it. But you can be like, yeah, hey, I'm at a good place right now. And you can't just sit there and go, I'm a good place. This is where I'm going to be. Like you yeah. were just asking there. Um, you can appreciate where you're at and then you're like, I would like to try to do this. I would like to try to get to that thing. I'd like to try to move to this next level. Then you have more things to work, uh, work towards. And, and when you do all of that stuff, um, <clears throat> sometimes it's frustrating. A lot of times it's frustrating, but it gives you new perspective on things. You understand the work that went into it. Sometimes you accidentally discover things that you, wow, if I didn't mess this up or if I didn't try doing this thing or if I didn't read up on that, I never would have known this thing. Now I can apply that to, to other things that I right. do. So it's just a matter of what are your interests and how do you make that your job uh, without it being a job? You know, it's like, I like doing this. I love doing, I mean, I've been doing radio since I was, eight, no, since I was 16 <laughs> sure. and, um, <laughs> but I've always found a way to keep doing it, doing TV and doing radio. Um, it's my whole career has been like, you know, quilt, like a quilt, a lot of patchwork. I went from here to here doing these two things at the same time to get me to this, to that, to that. So you're always kind of hopping around doing this stuff. But I, I, I'm always constantly working on, on these things. After leaving Sirius, I was trying to figure out, well, you know, I kind of got blindsided over there. Yeah, talk I, to me a little bit about that because when that happened um – I looked at it and I said, man, I feel sorry for those people because let's let's dispel a commonly held notion. Just because you may have had a show or a role at Sirius or at any of the big national um, syndicators 
doesn't mean you were a wealthy man. Uh, Do you know what I mean? I'm not saying you were a pauper yeah. and you don't even have to tell me like, hey, I was. But I mean, like, for example, my show, I did it for a year. I lost money on every single show I did at Sirius uh, because I was on a, you know, uh, barter system. I did my show. They gave me commercial time. Yeah. Right. So people, you, you, yeah, you okay. made money based off of you brought in ads and stuff, right? Well, also it was a it was a great advertising for my website at the time because I had a subscription fantasy football service. So I I actually got paid quote by increasing my subscriptions to my site through the SiriusXM platform. But yeah, yeah, I didn't I didn't earn a penny directly from Sirius, and people look at you. As a matter of fact, the guy who took my slot, the show that took my slot when they didn't renew right. my contract, um, I found out later paid for his slot. So here you have people paying uh, pay to play on a satellite subscription is, service. Isn't that nuts? Wow, that is nuts. Right, but but I'm saying, I didn't know they were doing that, and they may not be doing it any longer. Again, this was when ten almost ten years ago. So. I, I'm not saying that's what's happening now. I don't want to give any uh, false information out there. But I think people really have this notion like, hey, you know, if you're uh, working for Opie and Anthony, you must be making great coin. Um, but that may not be the case. So when they started laying people off from there, I actually thought about guys like you and Eastside Dave, who not that we're tight, tight, but guys that I had known that I'm saying like, what happens now? These people have families, you know, they're, you know, and right. it's not like radio used to be. It's not as ubiquitous. Like you get fired from CBS, you go to NBC or whatever, or any local affiliate. I mean, those opportunities are getting fewer and far between. Right. Right. Um, I won't speak for Dave. That was his own situation. Right, right. Uh, Dave wound up leaving for different reasons, but that, and that was years before everything else. Um, <clears throat> for my thing, uh, I, I had a feeling it like for the most part, I think it was just guilty by association because I was kind of the last thing left. Jim and Sam rebooted as their own thing after right. the fallout with Ope. And during that year, you know, I wasn't getting along with Opie for, for his solo run in the afternoon. And, uh, I was overseeing the channel and then they, they merged our channel with faction, the music channel. And they brought Jason Ellis over, and then when they were starting to put shows from L.A. on our channel, so I was overseeing all of that. And I got to the point where I was like, eventually this is not going to be in, in our control anymore, and, and it wasn't. Once they switched the name, then other people were taking over management-wise. And uh, I, I kind of had a feeling that the writing was on the wall. Now, I'm but, sorry, before you continue, when you say you were yeah. running the channel – do you mean as a producer of individual shows or were you like the program director for the, in essence, the program director for the channel? Uh, it was, I was doing that. Don Wicklin would sign off. He was the vice president. Uh, um, pretty much I was everything but money. Like I had okay. nothing to do with finance or financial decisions, which by the way, you never want to be the money guy. Oh yeah, never. <laughs> because a lot of people want to be the money guy. They make a lot of money. They think like, oh, being the money guy is great, but the slightest thing goes wrong. You're gone. You're not only are you gone, but you got like legal issues <laughs> on you because if a penny is missing, then you can be sued. And, and you know, uh, if it turns out that you mismanaged something or maybe you did take money, like it's too dangerous to be in that kind of position. And anybody who wants that position is automatically suspect because why would you <laughs> want it's just like the presidency? Right. doesn't matter what party you're on, but why would you want that job? You know, why would you want any kind of high level uh, political leadership 
that is just open to scrutiny. And if things go well, they're like, oh, yeah, things are fine. But the second things go bad, then you're being crucified. Right, you don't right, want that. Right. So, yeah, I was I was running the technical end of the back, making sure the channel was scheduled, the right shows were on, dealing with all the uh, secondary programming that was on there that weren't the main shows. Because each show had its own producer except the the weekend programs. They all had just the host recording their stuff and then they needed people to to actually you know put the stuff together like when we were carrying joe rogan's show right right i was working with his producer they'd give me the episode i'd have to trim it down to fit our time frame and add all the extra production and you know plugs for his thing so dr steve uh jim florentine bob kelly rich voss there's a whole bunch of other shows that we had had to oversee that they got their stuff in right and everything was done uh, all the scheduling is done, dealing with the traffic department for commercials and live reads and like all it's pretty much it was an operations role. Right. So anything I would do, I would have to get Don to sign off. But, you know, it was I was pretty much executing everything else after that point. You know, Don would give the yes or no that we could do certain things and then I would take care of the rest of it. Yeah. So that's what took up a lot of my time. Well, I can it was imagine. not just doing the shows. Yeah. Now, did you have to deal with personalities as well, or were you just, like you said, the operational end of running the channel? Or did you have to deal with Ron and and Opie and um, Jason Ellis and whoever was on the channel at that point? Ellis's staff I did for a little bit, but never Ellis. Uh, ben, Ron and Fez slash Bennington, they're always self-contained. They did all their own stuff. I never had to deal with them unless it was, you know something minor promos or scheduling for unmasked something you know right. stuff that the, the audience doesn't give a shit about um but yeah i'd never had anything to do with them i dealt with opie you know i had opie and jimmy i had opie um jim and sam were pretty self-sufficient when they when they took off and it was just keeping an eye on their scheduling that was now i don't mean to to rehash this and please do not get into anything you don't want to get into but when you say something like i was dealing with opie do you mean dealing with his production demands or dealing with Opie as Opie? I mean, which, which when you say that, like it's a little open to interpretation, right? So is it that Opie was like this perfectionist and you had to get all his? No, I'm know, not saying that at all. I'm I'm saying like dealing with his. Uh, I'll reword it: producing his stuff. Gotcha. So you know, overseeing his afternoon show gotcha. at that point, um, working with the guest booking with Roland. That everything was coordinated, like he would book somebody and we'd make sure, you know, everything that needed to be taken care of for that guest coming in and scheduling and all that other stuff was all taken care of. Uh, it just it's all behind the scenes stuff that no one really gives a shit about, you know. It, it like I hate listing the details because it's boring <laughs> and it doesn't mean anything to anybody other than unless you're actually working right. in this business. Um, but it's just yeah, it was overseeing a show, making sure his show worked, so he could do what he does and then doesn't have to worry about anything else. Cool. That's the that's the easiest way to put it. But to answer your other thing that you had asked about with leaving, yeah. Um, yeah, I think it was just guilty by association. But then it was also about being, you know, in a certain pay level and and what have you. And uh, there's other things that I won't get into. But there was some, you know, it was almost going to be legalities at that point. I think I've talked to my show and, and online a little bit about it. But you know, I uh, my agent had to deal with them and and came to a. Uh, resolution with them and that's where we kind of walked away at that point and uh, i'll never go work for them again or do i have a subscription or anything to deal with them because i think they're a really shitty company and i don't like their management 
Gotcha. So. Gotcha. You know, I, I have to admit, um, after I got let go, and I, and I think, look, I've been fired from a lot of things in my life. Um, but I think the way they let me go was a little shitty, too. But, um, and much like yourself, not only did I cancel my subscription, I sold my stock in SiriusXM. Like, mm-hmm. when I work for someone that I enjoy, I go all in. I'll buy their stock, everything. And I just sold everything and, and took my way out. But you left there. Uh, you you started your own um, show, your podcast, I think, right? It, it's Eric Nagel. No, I had I had the show. Oh, you I had, had it already at that point. In fact, I had it. My show was still – my show launched while Opie and Anthony were still on. Really? Okay. I did not I know did that. I did two shows, and then Anthony got fired. and uh, But I kept my show there for – a little over three years, and then uh, part of my deal was that I owned everything for my show. Cool. So I left, and we we kept doing. In fact, they, I don't know how they granted this because they never do that, but they gave me a last show. They said, uh, "You can't do it here, but if you go, if you're doing it in your own studio, we'll let you air a final show." Hmm. Fine. So we recorded the final show. You can go out there, and then uh, we said our piece where you could find us moving forward, and then we played a song saying. You know, uh, so glad that uh, that we can get the fuck away from that place. <laughs> and they aired it, and I was saying, "Wow, okay, cool." Yeah, they aired it, whatever. And then, uh, yeah, we walked away. We were doing it on our own, and about three weeks after that, iHeart. Uh, we talked with iHeart Radio, and they picked us up. Okay. So we're on their uh, their uh, their app, their digital platform. Right. Not on a radio station, which is always the goal, but. They've really been getting a lot, gobbling up a lot of content for like everybody else is now. Being on a radio station is just would be a prestige thing for me now. It doesn't even mean prestige in the business anymore, because when you used to have a podcast and you were still on the radio, I'm like why are you doing a podcast? You're on the radio. Now it's like, well, you're on the radio. You can't really do much. What's your podcast? Podcast also has a double edged sword because then like everybody's got a fucking podcast. There's a million of them out there, so you have to. You know, have some kind of balance to it. But if you can have a company with some prestige and then have a show that ha- had been uh, proven and, and was working, then those two together actually do pretty well for yourself. So uh, iHeart uh, picked up our show. Yeah. And, uh, so we were lucky three weeks out and then we got we got uh, a home for it. We, we do it once, maybe twice a week sometimes. But uh, they've been great to us oh. for the last Years, yeah, that's fantastic. I mean, recently I got my show on my podcast on uh, iHeartRadio, um, but I think you know it's not like any specific contractual deal. It's just that they accepted the show on their platform, you know. So it's just uh, yeah. I, I have uh, I have live reads. I have commercials. Oh, great! Uh, pretty much my show is a dumping ground for other shows <laughs> that have uh, too. Much, they've oversold their inventory. Right, right. All of a sudden, it's like, oh, he's on our he's under our umbrella. Throw everything on there and. It's so weird. I don't, I'm not gonna trash any of the the ads because there's no need to. But right. it's just weird. Like you'll go from somebody with a razor company to somebody selling you like butchered meats <laughs> in a delivery service, and then you get the normals like Fresh Direct right, and right. Um, other weird little things pop up here and there. Dunkin' Donuts shows up. Sometimes I hear the, some of the ads and I go, "These are pretty some you right. know what they call blue chip stocks." Right, right, <laughs> you know? right, right. I'm like, and I'd I'm like, look. I'm not getting any money from it. Can I at least get gift cards or something right. for my guys, whatever? And they're like, no, you can't get anything. <laughs> well, <laughs> but so sometimes you hear the ads and I go, wow, you must be doing really good. I go, I don't see a dime of, of most of that. I, some, some of I do the yeah. live reads, a hundred percent. I do if right. we do the live reads, but, 
so yeah, some of the ads that come on there, it's like no other show gets these kind of things. And I know it's because of whatever, um, you know, uh, line of command that I'm in that they've oversold right. and they just place it everywhere so they could say that they filled inventory. Right, right. It's, uh, I think back in the day we called it run the network ads, but, uh, but well, it's, yeah, at least I, I, yeah, that's right. After a syndicated thing, the first two minutes, like if you listen to a sports broadcast, right. whatever your team is, right. And most of it you'll hear, like it could be like the New York, uh, like for the Giants, the football Giants right. here in the city, New York Giants radio network, or if you're out in, in, uh, in Seattle, out here at the Seahawks radio network, right. it's usually Westwood One that has all the feeds right. for the sports stuff. Those first two minutes of ads are the networks, and then all of a sudden you start hearing the local stuff on those <laughs> right. stations. Right. Yeah, or if you listen to like Limbaugh, Sean Hannity, or right. any kind of major. Any kind of style talk yeah. on a network like that. Usually, you'll hear their little sounder thing, whatever. Right. And those, that minute to two minutes is is their ads before the local stations can uh, take over and, and play their stuff. Oh, that's but little dirty stuff. A uh, little <laughs> trivia there. That's cool. That's cool. All right. So now you're also at Compound Media with um, uh, Anthony from Opie and Anthony, Anthony Cumia. Uh, how how do you like working there? I mean, first of all, let me just say I love that studio and how they built it out. Um, and they even have a little bench area, uh, for, for listeners, uh, to come watch studio audience. And, um, I think he, what he was able to pull off is such a great, uh, case study for entrepreneurs, not just in radio, but just like someone who literally got fucked by the system out of a dream job. He's even said like that job was probably his dream job, right? Go, oh, yeah. go in it would Vegas. be anybody's dream job. Exactly. Yeah. And to get, yeah, it was my dream job and I was working there. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. And he got cut off at the knees by, by really an overreaction in social media. And so he, so because he had been broadcasting out of his basement, just because he was an enthusiast, a hobbyist, right? Right. And I think Joe Rogan has said this more than once. Many times, many yeah. times he credits Anthony for, for him, uh, um, starting the, the uh, getting his getting his button gear and just like wait I can do these things right. so he started researching how to do it and getting the equipment and yeah uh, we've Joe was just on I think a couple weeks ago right the anniversary and, show right yeah yeah for the one thousandth episode right and uh, you know somewhere around there and and Joe came on and uh, he said it plenty of times before that but for the most recent if you want to look up that episode yeah he gives all the credit in the world to Anthony for. Uh, showing him essentially how it could be done on your own and then just like anybody you, you show them how to do it and see what they go off and do it and now joe's you know the hundred million dollar oh, man unbelievable going deal. to spotify unbelievable you know deal. god bless him yeah. for, for uh for working that deal out but yeah you can go and do anything you want it, it, you never know who's going to inspire you say i like how they do stuff let me see how they can do that oh i could do that but this way or i could do that and then go this way completely different from it everybody branches off differently for what they're going to do and uh yeah he built that thing up from his basement to a complex in this in the city and uh then we have the studios there that we, we were on 12 shows when we were allowed to we had audiences right, right. <laughs> that would come in and watch everything everything's all remotely done now we have a few in the city out on long island some in jersey because of the the quarantine but yeah he built that up from from uh, just like you said being an enthusiast to making it a um a sink or swim business venture after leaving he, he was a month yeah to the day i think 
think around August 4th, 2014, a month to the day, he had that thing up and running and ready to go. Yeah, and the important lesson that I took from that is it doesn't have to be perfect. I mean, when right. he rolled it out, it was a subscription service. He had his model in his mind that he thought he needed to implement. It wasn't right. perfect, um, but he worked on it, and he would let his audience know, hey, man, we've got we've got a few issues. We're going to work them out. We'll make it right. You know, if we have to refund or extend your subscription, we'll do it. And <clears throat> there's a hold on. There's a difference, though, from because I've seen a lot of people that they go and they buy all the best equipment, or they oh, buy yeah. and they build fancy sets and, and studios and all this stuff, and they really don't have the content for it, or they have too many people talking over each other, or they're just not whatever it is. Uh, <clears throat> having all this kind of stuff is great if you know how to use it and if you know what it's used for. Right. Now, it sounds like I said the same thing, but it's two different things. What it's used for is to make a good show, to have people sound their best and look their best to do these kind of things. Um, but that takes time. That takes trial and error, and that takes a lot of uh, uh, case study, if you will, you know, learn by doing, and also observing how who uh, who does it and who does it really well. Whether you like people or not, you know, TV and radio, there's a lot of shows that I don't like, but I still would watch them and I'd still listen to them and I'd say to figure out how they do things. Maybe they do something. There could be one little thing that they do and you go, you know what? I like that. I'm going to take that and use that for me. It's not ripping them off. It's a, it's adapting a technique. It's if you no will. homage. <laughs> no homage for a lot of that shit out there. But <clears throat> it's like, you're like, I like how they do this. Or I like how they right. schedule this. I like the structure of that. And you take that and you make it your own and then you figure out your own things. That's how everybody gets started. They imitate the shows that they like or the people that they like. And then if they're smart or they know how to progress, yeah. they're like, all right, I'm going to try. How do I make this my thing now? I don't want to stop. I want to stop doing what they do and make it my thing. And uh, yeah, having all this stuff is great. But if you, you need to learn how to do it and it doesn't have to be perfect, like you said, but. It doesn't have to be just turn it on and go either. I've heard some other people who are very well off in the in this industry, podcasting, streaming, whatever, and they said just turn it on and go. You know, you'll figure it out. Okay, no, listen, I, I disagree with that. You, yeah, like, you won't. You got to find some sort of balance to it. You yeah. can't look and sound like <clears throat> shit and just hope it's going. You're going to fix it because you don't have. Look, that first impression thing yeah. is 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 critical. Right. Like if you can give the impression of. They put some effort into this. You know, look at the setup they have. And they're figuring it out as they go. People will be okay. People will tolerate that. If it's complete shit and you're starting and like we're going to figure this out as we go, a lot of people are not very forgiving. They'll look at, give you a couple minutes and go, nope, not doing this. So you need to have sort of the, the look, the sound, and then the talent or the personality to go with it. So in Anthony's case – you know, 20 plus years at the top uh, of, of the business. Very funny person. He's doing what you know he does uh, with a decent setup. You know, considering this is not something they were used to. They were used to listening to him on the radio. Now they're seeing this. And at that time, for what he started with, was ahead of a lot of other people. Built all that stuff there. So when they were having little trials and errors, it was like radio fuck-ups. If we played the wrong sound or the wrong sound effect... People were willing to forgive those things, and then he evolved into the bigger studio and everything else he did. You can't just start a podcast with six people at a table and, and one microphone in the middle, and you've got <laughs> one webcam on in the corner, and that's how you're going to do it. It's like, well, this, we're going to start here, and then we'll build. No one's going to watch that. No one's right. going to listen to it just because they saw how, what, what garbage it was. Right. 
again another long rant to go on that's a, no hey man i love the long rants i'm long-winded myself you know that but um so you're at compound media right now uh yeah. i'll ask you the question that i do like working there that was your that was my question. original yeah. question yes. but i but i could tell you that you do um here's a question for you um I, I, I do a, a separate political podcast as well with a partner of mine for like, we've been doing it for the last seven, eight years. Okay. Um, we're libertarians. We consider ourselves, you know, not, not liberals or anything. I have to tell you, I used to be with Anthony 90% of the time, right. but this whole Trump thing has thrown, thrown him off for me. Um, would you say that his persona of being a Trump backer, I, I mean, obviously he supports Trump, but is he that radical a backer or is it more, hey, Trump really upended the apple cart and as someone in radio, that's really a golden opportunity to play that up and get some content to that? You'd have to... <clears throat> like your impression I, I of can't, it. I can't really answer that. I mean, you'd have to ask him. Okay. Uh, of, of, you know, what he says and what he portrays and then what he does... It's not always 100% consistent with what everyone thinks a line is for de being on whatever side of, right, right. Of, uh, of, of a thought process or a group or, or ideal. He goes on there and he's just trying to be entertaining. Right. You know, does he go on rants? Does he have these other things? Yes. Do other talk show hosts do that? Does Lionel, does Hannity, does, uh, you know, when Lycus was on or Phil Hendry or, or uh, Neil Rogers and all of them? Yeah. They have they have their take, they have their slant, whether you agree with it or not, but then they have their entertaining points to it. So I, I don't think he's doing anything different than any other kind of uh, commentator or any kind of uh, of uh, experienced broadcaster that they have their beliefs. And sometimes they're playing it like Alex Jones, it's fucking wacko, but he's entertaining to watch whether you agree with him or not. You just sit there and watch it. You can, you could laugh at like, Oh my God, he's so ridiculous. Right. Or you could look at it and go, Oh my God, he's so ridiculous. Like right. right. from either perspective, he's entertaining it, whether that's Alex Jones or not. I don't know. I'm not around him. I don't think that's hundred percent him. I think that's just him amplified, but same thing with that. You know, he, he'll give you his point of view and he'll, you know, he'll goof on Trump. He'll support Trump. Look, Whatever political leanings you are, you said you're a libertarian, but whatever, any, anybody watching this, it doesn't matter. If you watch the Trump rallies, they're a wrestling event. Oh, yeah, no if doubt. you keep that in mind, I, look, yeah, it's no real, su real, su real people, real subjects, but he, that's the world he comes from. So you can laugh at, that, at those rallies and go, this is fucking ridiculous, and have it being entertaining and, and humorous. Not everything has to be completely dystopian and life is over and this person is evil i don't care what anybody thinks if it's funny it's funny if it's entertaining it's entertaining and i think that's what you again you'd have to ask him his right. personal thoughts and all that but i think from what you see on the air he's just going with what's entertaining what's funny and see i can understand that um but you see i, I i've always been left to wonder why is it that certain hosts, even in the context of a talk show or an entertainment show or a comedy show, like look at Anthony, right. look at Gavin McGinnis, for example. Right. Um, I met Gavin two or three times. Seems like a perfectly nice guy to me, you know, normal and everything. Yet he's painted as basically a Nazi by most people. Right. Anthony seems to have that pseudo tagged on him. And I don't know if it's just people who... Uh, like comedy or not like i can listen to that stuff and say most of it is is not an act uh, but like you said amplified it's wrestling it's pro wrestling it's right you take your personality turn it up to 11 
Like, I don't have... There's no doubt in my mind that those guys are not Nazis. Do you know what I mean? They're not Nazis. I never right. viewed them as Nazis. Why do you think it sticks with so many people? And again, corroboration from other parts of the media, right? Like you'll have people like right-wing um, comedian Gavin McGinnis or right-wing um, uh, talk show host Anthony Cumia, you know, and, and it always seems to stick in the media, which infuriates me to no end. Because um, you, can't, you can't just be one you just can't be sorry not not one thing you can't be you can't have an empty label i'll say you have to be labeled at least one thing okay and that's you could be out there and you could be charming you could be funny you could be witty you could be well read well spoken and they'll find something and i'm not saying just the news or the press anybody will find something that you said or a mannerism that you have to determine, like, oh, that's what they believe, or that's what they fall into this category. He must be um, uh, an ultra liberal, or he must be, uh, you know, uh, an extreme, uh, extremely to the right, or a religious zealous, or uh, zealous, or whatever. They need to, because otherwise they can't. For some reason, they can't handle not having a label on people, because if you have a label on somebody, you just have a predetermined view of like, oh, they're that, right? And then that's how you view them. Um. If you don't have that, they can't brand you and they can't label you and they can't give you a headline or, or slant an opinion piece in whatever direction they want to that's either for you or against you. So if you're driving down the middle, and a lot of people want to be in the middle because everything's politicized right now and I, everybody's so fucking tired of it. Whether you like Trump or hate Trump or you like whoever else on the other side – doesn't matter who your candidate is, who your party is. You're tired of fucking politics because it's just too much the last four years. And I'm not saying it's it's one particular side over the other. It's everybody. It's just too much. There's been more politics that have been shine on like the bat signal to every redundant situation or every um, unimportant situation. Politics gets thrown on there for no reason. It's like it's too. It's the wrong garnish on on your meal. You know, it's like whatever it is needs to have paprika. I don't want paprika. <laughs> nope, it's got paprika on it. Right. And it, and you just ruin things like that. You stop liking TV shows. You stop liking music. You stop liking movies. You stop liking all of this stuff because, well, this movie's perfectly funny. Yeah, but you didn't have uh, um, all these uh, ethnicities included into it, or you didn't have these, uh, um, you know, these gender roles associated into it. And you go, okay, well, that's not what the story was about. It was about these things. Yeah, but you need to have that stuff in there. No, you don't. <laughs> like, if, if it makes sense, like, if, if the characters are in something, and it doesn't matter who they are or what their race, religion, gender, all that nonsense, if it doesn't matter in there, then who cares? Let them, you know, if they're in there, fine. Don't force it in there. Don't force your political be beliefs, your religious beliefs, your, uh, your social outrage beliefs on this shit, that's a, a big problem. It's just everyone has to be labeled. So the, the, you get shit like where Anthony and Gavin were, you know, sometimes because of things they said or stuff that was taken out of context, which right. is 99% of the time. It, they, they, everyone needs to have a category or a label to put you in or else they can't figure out how to, to function or deal with you. They can't just say, well, maybe that's just, maybe just that's, that's him. Maybe it's not really anything. Everything doesn't have to be something. Sometimes right. it can be nothing. 
or not or nothing really even right. it, it doesn't be that much that it doesn't matter what that person believes you know you used to watch hosts and, and comics and go up there and you didn't care what their po- their political beliefs were for the most part unless they were vocal about it like if it was like a prior or a carlin where that worked into right, their act right. but you'd get other guys that go up, like seinfeld you don't under- you don't know what his beliefs are but they want to label him as being, you know, very uh, conservative now, right. because he doesn't want to do colleges. But right. so does Chris Rock. Chris Rock doesn't want to do colleges anymore because they're out of hand. Oh, that they're, they're so conservative leaning, and they're right. Like, no, maybe those <laughs> kids are just fucking nuts. Right. You know, so not everything has to have a label, and that's, I mean, that, again, another long-winded <laughs> way to okay, go man. to answer this question. But yeah, people need to label something and put you in a category. And when they can't do that, that's an even bigger problem. No, they don't know how to deal with you. Dude, I feel you. Um, I had written a screenplay. I you get a lot of this out, by the way. That was just a long yeah. fucking bag of explanation. <laughs> that's yeah. okay, man. I, I let, I'm a free speech absolutist, too. So you get to talk all you want. But I was going to say, I actually had a, um, a script that I submitted to a festival. Right. Um, made it to the finals. Told it was the funniest script. But it was politically not acceptable because I had uh, bosses chasing secretaries around and, you know, that sort of old slapstick uh, gender roles, which I guess was unacceptable. So actually cost me the finals. I got into the, you know, I got the semifinalist award or whatever it was. But it was very interesting to me that even comedy, like it's one thing if you're writing something that social commentary or documentary, you have to be fair and balanced. But in the context of comedy, how do you see comedy surviving if this is the case going forward? Uh, comedy will be just fine, even though it's difficult right now. Um, <clears throat> it used to be because com- comedy comedians stand up, I'll say, was the last bastion of, well, they can get away with it because it's uh, comics are off limits. They're it's the last bastion of free speech, as I used to say. By the way, I hate the term free speech. It doesn't mean anything anymore to what it used to do. And I just don't like when people say I'm not knocking you yeah. when you say free speech advocate that's an ideal and that's fine sure. but when people use it as branding as a label it's like oh i'm for free speech free speech this free speech that no you just want to be able to say really shitty things to people and really horrible <laughs> stuff and that's where you're you're hiding under the guise of free speech should you be able to say it absolutely yeah. um whether there's repercussions to it or not the whole free speech thing means you don't go to jail for criticizing the government right that's it Basically, That's all yeah. it means. It doesn't mean you can't just walk up to somebody and call them, you know, a, a racial slur or something slanderous and uh, say, hey, whoa, free speech. I'm allowed to say what I want. W- yeah, but you also can get punched in the face by that person, too, because that doesn't cover what you just did to that person, you know? So free speech, whenever, was, even with us, with Compound, when it was labeling free speech, it was just like, I, I have. I, I get it. Like the, the principles are still there. We let everybody say what they, they want to say. But because of the way it's viewed in the public now, free speech just tends to mean, oh, you want to be racist. Right. So whenever you have free speech now, oh, you're a racist. It's like, no, that's not it at all. That's not what that means. And that's unfortunately lost all its value when you say free speech stuff. It, having it up on a logo somewhere, it's, just, it's hard because people just assume – Oh, you're really shitty, horrible people because you can say whatever the hell you want. Yeah, and it has devolved into that. Yeah, so unfor- that's very unfortunate. You know, I, I know a lot of other people have stopped using it for 
their monikers, whether they're political talk or comedy talk or even sports talk or what have you, they've started dropping the whole promoting free speech because it just doesn't mean anything anymore. And you can't explain to a lot of people because now they'll just say, oh, well, uh, these ad agencies don't want to advertise anymore because uh, they think that you lean this way or you think – it's like that's not what it is at all, but everyone's so fucking dumb nowadays that, that you have to play this game, unfortunately, and, and do this shit. Um, now, is that something that you – like I know it – I, I sidetracked off the free speech thing. Yeah. What, were, what was it you just asked? I forgot. I'm sorry. No, that's okay. That's okay. That's okay. Um, I was just wondering how free speech as a concept is impacted going forward, uh, especially in oh, comedy. Oh, with, with comics. That's yeah. what it was. Um, well – yeah, the whole po- all right. So I was setting up the the fact that yeah, they were the hands off. They were the last bastion, and right. people were trying to get at comics and say they're not to say that, but it was because it was comedy. There was sort of a protection around it, and then somehow they broke through. So now every time a comic says something, they're taping uh, what the comics call working out. If they're working in smaller clubs right. and they're working a bit, and maybe the phrasing's off or the or the concept is a little wobbly and they're not fully there yet. That's their workout, and that gets recorded on somebody's phone, and they throw it online. Like, oh, look at this! It's obviously a, you know, the it's a shot against gay people, or it's a shot against women. It's a right. shot. It's like, well, what's the context of the joke? Right. Like, they're not even there. To f- they don't even have the full context running yet, or maybe they clipped off part of the video so you didn't see what led up to it, and that this was a callback to something, or this was an added punchline somewhere down the later in the act right. that referred to something earlier. You don't know, so. They they wound up getting to the point where now even the comics aren't safe. A lot of comics were getting in trouble just for being comedians, right. whether they lean one way or the other. Nick DiPaolo was getting enough shit. Um, uh, who else was getting some? Uh, well, like Ka- Nick DiPaolo was a very conservative leaning comic. Well, Kathy Griffin, so he would get shit. Kathy Griffin, Kathy, on all the right, left. Kathy Griffin, comic, if yeah, you want. Well. Uh, and I did air quotes, even yes. though that's so dumb. Yeah. Uh, it, it felt appropriate for her. <laughs> Uh, went too far the other way, and she got uh, a lot of shit handed to her. Um, Chelsea Handler got shit. Right. Uh, to, so it didn't matter if you were leaning one way or the no, uh, the other. Then you started to see that, ooh, even comedy is not safe anymore. Stand-up comedy is not safe anymore. So it's a matter of when this is done, and they figure out the way to get everything back rolling with comedy. Because unfortunately for stand-ups, at least this is my opinion. I, I mean, I'm not a comic. How would I know? Right. But I've been around a lot of them for long enough to to feel that the, a lot of their stuff, they need an audience. They're like the one profession that you need to have an audience to perfect it before putting it out there to another audience. You need the feedback. Yeah. It's not like you're a musician where you're in the studio. You can spend months re-recording tracks right. and tweaking and editing and mastering. And then you put it out to the audience, the finished product. You have to do it. In, it's ma- Imagine being an artist. And you have to all your vocal fuck ups, or if you had a bad voice day, or you know you just couldn't hit the the rhythm or something in a recording session, and you're in front of a live audience all the time while you're doing it. Right. It, like we wouldn't have a majority of the music that's out now oh, because I, of all. Right. I, yeah, I tell people. Um, imagine, forget being a stand-up comic. What if you're just a comedy writer? Let's say you wrote a sitcom episode. How, right. how ridiculous would it be if everyone saw all the crumpled papers that you wrote the original joke on, then reworked it? If and you had to have an audience for a table read every time, oh, crazy! Because that's just the first. Like, here's the here's the rough draft of the of the episode. Let's do the table read. Get the the right. uh, feel the motion of it. 
you know what? This this dialogue's a little tricky. It's kind of clunky going into this line. Let's reverse the parts. Let's go. Th-. Like you're making those changes in the reads right. and all that stuff. And then you have an audience that's sitting there watching this and and critiquing like, oh, man, this this episode of whatever sitcom you're a fan of or, or a drama that you're, you're a fan of. It's terrible. And they put it all online. By the time they get the finished product done, you're really going to want to watch it or see it because they shit all over it all the time? Oh, man. No. So when the, these comics, that they, they get the videos taken of them and everyone's looking to crucify any kind of a comedian that has some kind of of uh, st- what they would consider be a controversial thought or statement when really it's just this is what comics do and this is what we look for them to do. You know, we don't right. look for them to be everybody's safe and everybody's fun and nobody's offended and we're all laughing at really like very vanilla humor. Yeah. I'd rather No, have- <laughs> you you want stuff that pushes the edge. You yeah. want stuff maybe it's too shocking, sometimes it does go too far, sometimes it doesn't go far enough. You don't know until you're in the moment watching these things and they're and they're building it until they get it to the point where like this is the version I'm putting out there to the world. But unfortunately, they got uh, that they like I said they crossed that line, and now they're being crucified for everything they do too. Comics have to be very careful with what they do and how they do, and especially coming back, I've I've heard like Aaron Berg has said it uh, many times, and I've heard other comics on other podcasts saying that it's like they can't even come back and talk about what's going on now, right? Like for the most part, because you got an audience finally coming back to your show, you're not going to sit there and go. Oh, remember the whole uh, quarantine time, and then what? You know, they don't. They're trying to escape that. So you don't. All the stuff that's going on now, you barely have any material from this current situation to use towards the, at least right away. Right. To uh, getting back up into stand up. Well, it's like the whole nine eleven around then, right? Like people didn't know when it was okay to start joking about nine eleven. Like everybody right. was on pins and needles. Now, obviously, a much more shocking event, but it's that same type of situation. There was one person who knew when it was time. Yeah, Gilbert. Gilbert Gottfried. Gilbert. I wish I could sit down with him as well. He just seems like, he's one of those underrated geniuses, in my opinion. Um, as much accolades as he's gotten, he deserves more. Uh, right. I just think he's you listen to it. Do you listen to his podcast? Uh, yes, I have. I, I, <laughs> I, I've listened to about 50 of them, I think. I haven't listened to each one, yeah. but yeah, fantastic. Uh, I'm friends uh, with Frank Santa Padre. Oh, okay. And him and Frank do an amazing job. They do. And, they just they're catering to an audience that's not going to be around much longer right but it for a generation of of talent that's not either not a, has long been gone or not going to be around much longer yeah. and it's not even it's not even a show <laughs> it's not even like an entertainment right. it's more like an historical time capsule like yes, like his up like you could go into the future and maybe you look back at Howard or you look back at ONA or um, Bob Grant, right. or Sean Hannity, or even Joe Rogan and Mark Marin, and you go, yeah, these were shows that were big back in the day. Right. Like when we look back at at uh, the Mike Douglas show or Dinah Shore, right. and, like all these shows that were big at the time but mean nothing exactly. now. Yeah. But you look back at, at the historical relevance of this. Gilbert's show seems like it would be in the Museum of Television Radio or the Smithsonian, where you could sit down. And just listen to selections. It's it's it feels like it's an historic encyclopedia of things rather than just a podcast about old talent. Right, and it's also it's not just that which it is everything you just mentioned. It's also the way he deals with the trivial. Like he'll find the character actor 
on some 40s episode 1950s episode of leave it to beaver or something you know yep. and, and he'll bring them in and then they talk for an hour and i'm saying well how much how much material could you have gotten out of this guy for an hour but he makes it work and they it, do and you'd never get like i'm always looking at my watch like holy shit an hour and a half went by uh, but it's a fantastic uh, yeah. Frank podcast. does amazing research, and then Gilbert just remembers all these weird little idiosyncrasies and yes. these weird little scenarios that don't, like you said, don't mean anything to anybody. <laughs> right. But they remember that one thing, and then they that opens up a doorway to other stories, and they get some whole look. It's not a wholesome show by any means. Right. It sounds and it feels the production value right. and the vibe of the show feels very wholesome and very laid back and comforting. But the dialogue is completely horrendous at times, oh, and sure. that's I think I think that's what really makes that show great, where it's very very safe and very horrific all in the same space, right. and it's mixed together and it just works. Like the, he tells a story all the time about Cesar Romero, who played oh, yeah, yeah. the Joker <laughs> yes. in the original Batman series, about how he had little like pool boys or house boys <laughs> right. or whatever. He would pull down his pants and they would throw orange wedges as his ass for like some kind of kink. <laughs> he loves telling that story to anyone he could to the point that it became such a staple of his right. program. They had little orange wedge pins <laughs> and right. stuff made. Like it was just all these ridiculous things that were used to be seedy underground. You right. never talk about right. that in public. It would now become these playful uh, dirty stories right. that everybody loves and go, oh, th those were cute old dirty men back then. <laughs> yeah, and for a while, wasn't it a different fruit that Cesar Romero allegedly liked having thrown at his ass? Initially, it was like lemon wedges, then it became oranges, then I don't know. But it was fun. You're right. They, the evolution of even using something like that is hilarious. Uh, yeah. And Gilbert, like I said, underrated genius. All right, Eric, uh, let me just wrap this up with some quick fire questions. Uh, who is the best comedian, in your opinion, understanding that by picking one, you're not slighting anybody else? Right. Who did you find to be the most either entertaining or insightful? Who did you always enjoy having coming into the studio? Oh, uh, into the studio? Patrice O'Neill. Oh, of course. Had to be, uh, hands down. Yeah. Uh, Patrice O'Neill. I loved Bill Burr. Because Bill Burr started coming on our show right before he got the Chappelle show. Okay. And then was coming on our show while he was doing the Chappelle show. And it was right at that moment where – that time where the ONA show and Bill's career coincided where Bill was just starting to get the boost. So to be there at the ground floor with Bill and see – him come on the show and then see all the other stuff that he was doing. Right. Uh, Bill's always been a favorite of mine as far as guests go. And uh, so, yeah, Patrice was always like the it's cliche, but you knew the day Patrice was coming in, you didn't have to do a lot of heavy lifting right. or a lot of prep work because Patrice would just take it and, and, and run with it. So, yeah, Patrice and Bill Burr. OK. As far as the guests go. Yeah. Yeah. Those. And I, I, I agree with you, um, especially Patrice. Um, it's weird, but I never knew the guy. I never met him. But right. is it weird to say I miss him? No. There's a lot of people. There's a big thing going on now, and I don't know if it's a Reddit-induced um, thing, but there's a thing that shows up on, on like weird suggested YouTube videos now and then. Right. And somebody's paying these webs uh, these YouTube channels that do reviews right. um, to watch Patrice videos. Oh, and I'm seeing okay. so many of these things pop up now where it's all these different kind of walks of life that are doing review channels right. are now being paid to watch these Patrice clips. So a lot of these people that either never heard of him or uh, didn't understand what he was about are watching these things. And you can see at the end that they're kind of like, 
oh, he died. I didn't know he died. Right, right. And, that, and th- when you hear that, it's like, that's a shame. Then you know they, they miss him, and they never met the guy. They just heard about the guy 20 minutes ago. Right. And now they even miss him. So, yeah, I don't think it's unusual at all to miss somebody that you haven't met. Yeah, yeah. Def- okay. Cool. Everybody does. When an artist or a super, or a, uh, sports athlete dies or something like that, yeah. you miss them. You may not have ever met that person, but you'll miss that person. Right. No, I, I agree with you. It's just that almost on a personal level, and I guess people always say that's why radio is so different than television. You you feel like you have a personal connection with these voices that you hear coming through the radio, you know? Oh yeah. More I mean so that's why TV. any fans of any show gets mad at those shows right. when they're <laughs> when they're done or if they got if they did something stupid and got, you know, thrown off the air or whatever, they get mad at you because you are such an important part of their life. Like you were just me you would think like, oh, we're just the show that they threw on in the morning as they're going to work. But that might have been the highlight of it. Like they get up and they make it an appointment to listen to this and time it out right so they could be in the car, or be in the train, or or uh, find a way to download the show and listen later because they needed to hear every show every day, every part of it. Right. And it becomes so part of. And I understand that because I had that growing up too. I used to. I had three or four different stereos in my house on timers that you would use for a lamp, <laughs> and that I'd have 120 minute cassettes. And I would have one radio set to go off at 6 a.m. And it had the auto reverse. So you had a 120-minute cassette tape. would tape one hour, hit re- reverse, and then record it. So that's 6 to 8 there. And then the st- other stereo in that room, boom, would go on at 7.59. And we'd get you to 9.59. So that's all four hours. So you could come home and listen to a show before you know digital came around. I get it. I did that all the time with Howard, with Scott and Todd, with uh, uh, Elvis Duran, with a whole bunch of shows. We would just sit there and listen to them, and uh, I, I get that feeling when the show goes away. It's like you're mourning a death. Yeah. I don't turn around and become an asshole to those people, but some that's how some people choose to deal with it. Right. Okay, cool. Let me, uh, let me put you on the spot here. Who, which guest in any capacity that you've worked was probably the most difficult to deal with? Difficult. Uh, there was a few. Uh, they like to say Paris Hilton, who she was very difficult to deal with. Um, there was a time we had Kareem Abdul-Jabbar on the show mm. and the previous times he was great. He was fun, but he had some kind of handler with him, some short, older lady that was just constantly giving him shit. Yeah. Like she was berating him. Like he's a legend. We didn't know what exactly their relationship is. Right. Um, I think we theorized that she might be like his dominatrix and he's paying for this <laughs> kind of thing, but like she was just berating him all the time. And then she would sit in there and she would like try to interfere with the interview while we were doing this like no we're not talking about that it's like we're not talking to you lady right, right. so you know that was another time so yeah paris kareem abdul jabbar um i'm sure there was a couple others i thought of one the other day now i'm forgetting it i used to always say when they always say who I did, yeah. my least favorite guest was i always said willem dafoe because oh, really? he didn't he didn't want to be there he was there promoting an independent movie that he had to, to be a part of or had to promote and as you know, as we talk, we were very casual, trying to get, lean into the whole thing, and he kept trying to cut us off and get to a plug, and then Ope had to yell at him, like, "Relax, we're going to get to your plug. We're just trying to talk to you." Right. And so you know, so he was just very difficult, and as he was, the other interviews done and trying to leave, we're trying to get their photos together, and he's just I gotta get out of here. like it was like it was beneath him to be there, so that always rubbed me the right. wrong way with all of this stuff. There was somebody else that came to mind the other day, and I can't remember who it was anymore. But I, yeah, there were there's there's very few people that were actually that difficult. Right. But 
Okay. Yeah, Fair I think enough. that answers enough. Yeah, yeah. That, that's good. All right, and um, who in radio would you have liked to work with outside of the guys that you actually did work with? So if there was one radio host or producer or anything that you would have said, damn, in his heyday or her heyday, I would have loved to be working with them in some capacity. Um, <clears throat> huh. Well, I got to work with O and A. I got to work with Rocky Allen and Scott Shannon, who to this day is still like probably the main reason I went into radio at all. Uh, I got to work with him at a couple different times. Mm. So, <clears throat> um, I guess you know I'd be lying if I would say that if at one point I it would have been interesting to work for Howard, right? Even though I hear the stories, and who knows if they're right or wrong. Uh, some of the stories come out there and how he acts on the area, but just to be part of that would have been uh, would have been something at least for me for being a fan of radio and, and a fan of his for so long. So I would say you know Howard would definitely be it. Um, but it's interesting that you your studios were in in at least at Sirius were like what forty fifty feet apart, and you guys never really from his from his studio yeah, like the old no, studio. No, and- it was the whole building was. I don't know. It was the, the entire building length was half a city block, which is pretty yes, long. Yes. And he was in one quarter and we were diagonal to the other quarter. Okay. So that was a pretty big distance away from, from them. Uh, I would see Howard on rare occasions when he was walking out, you know, to, right. to leave. Uh, I was pretty friendly with Ronnie, uh, the limo driver that right. they call him on the air. Uh, he was always very kind. Made to see him in the morning. We we talk and hang out in the hallway as he was waiting for Robin to come in. And some most of his staff, with the exception of like one or two guys, but most of the staff was really very nice and very friendly. And we would talk a lot. But um, yeah, I didn't really see him that often. And, and it, again, they had their own little compound thing. If you didn't have right. the key card to get in there, you couldn't even just you know as a spectator kind of walk past and view it like you could the other studios. Yeah. I snuck in one night, uh, Saturday night after my show because the cleaning staff was going through there. Yeah. So I just, did that. I snuck in with, Oh, did he? <laughs> he didn't take, a yeah, shit. there's a video. It worked out well for him. <laughs> oh, he didn't take a shit in anybody's desk. Did he? No. <laughs> no All right. All right. And, um, Eric, it was great talking to you. I, you know, I, and I really appreciate the fact that you took the time to talk to me. I understand uh, that I nagged you a lot, but I'm really happy in the end that you got here and you and you were very forthcoming in your answers. Uh, let everyone know where, where and when are your shows, uh, both on iHeart and at Compound Media. Uh, we'll do Compound Media first, compoundmedia.com. I do a show called Would You Kindly with Brian Johnson. He uh, had a TV show on AMC called Comic Book Man. He's in Kevin Smith's movies, has a podcast called Tell Him Steve Dave, which is sure. very popular. Uh, him and I do a show together, would you kindly, compoundmedia.com. Uh, my radio show, It's Eric Nagel, started on Sirius, and now we're here on uh, iHeartRadio. You can find it on iHeartRadio's app, Apple, Google Podcasts, Spotify, anywhere you can uh, you can get podcasts. I think you can pick up the program and uh, we do that once a week, and it's uh, me and Gittles and Zia and Trevor. So go check all those shows out. Absolutely. All right, everyone. It's been our pal Eric Nagel. Eric E-Rock, thank you once again. And uh, listen, keep an ear out. If Anthony needs a fantasy sports show on his compound network, you know <laughs> you know who to call, right? Well, there's no sports to fantasize about right now. so They will be. There will be. There'll be a football season this year. At least. Okay. Yeah. We'll see. All right. We'll man. see. We'll see. Thanks, man. Anyway, listen, have a good night. I appreciate everything. And uh, talk to you again. Peace.
All right. Take care, man. All right.